0: 25. We are going to move on from the life of Abraham. Sometimes it feels like we've been on something for as long as they were alive. But um, hope you gleaned a lot from the life of Abraham. I know I did. And we move on to the life of Isaac. So Genesis 25, beginning in verse 19, please. It's not a long passage, so we will read it together. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. So the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, we thank you as always for your word. Uh, it is perfect and it has got a depth that is unimaginable. It's unmeasurable. Uh, so we're thankful for every opportunity we have to try and study your word uh, for the hope and purpose of growing in Christ and knowing you better, uh, to loving you more and understanding how much you love us in every way and everything. And through all these stories, and um, these things that you have done, uh, we find you in them. Uh, may we be uh, blessed by your word today, and I just pray that we will be open to hearing what you have to say and what we need to learn uh, to be more like Christ and to love you more. We thank you in Jesus name, amen so you know it's it's kind of uh, one of the one of the, one of the one of the debatable things is what was the impact on Isaac at the altar hereto known as the incident right and his father lays him on the altar with a knife and and a, and it's going to light him and and sacrifice him which was never God's intent. It was purely a test of Abraham. And so there's been a lot of speculation, what's the impact on Isaac? And I'm not saying this is an absolute answer, but when we look at verse 21, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is unable to conceive children at this time. And Isaac pleads with the Lord. That to me is a tremendous indicator of where Isaac is at and what this has done to him. I'm sure there was all kinds of stuff that had to be worked out between Isaac and Abraham and Isaac and God. But when his moment in life has a crisis, this is the real first crisis we find in Isaac's life that's documented, and he goes to the Lord. He doesn't go to pagan gods that are around him everywhere. And unlike his father, he doesn't take matter in his own hands, does he? He doesn't find a Hagar like his dad did. Maybe he learned his lesson with Ishmael. But Isaac does what we all should do. He goes to the Lord, and he pleads with the Lord for his wife. It is an important ministry, and one that we do not want to miss the opportunity to talk about, how important the responsibility it is for husbands to pray for their wives. It is a responsibility, it is an obligation, and it is a privilege. As head of household... And as a representative of Christ in our home, to pray for our wives. Isaac is still spiritually close to God. So he turns to God when his wife has need. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We are going to look at a few verses today. 1 Peter chapter 3. There's a whole lot of stuff to learn in this passage. I'm going to try and do some justice in the time that we have. A verse that I'm sure we know. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Talking about marriage and the difference between men and women in relationships. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife, so as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Not only do we have a responsibility to pray for our wives, but how we live and how we treat them impacts those prayers. Does God want to hear the prayer of an unrighteous man? He does not. He does not. We need to understand that our wives need prayer, and we need prayer. There's a whole other thing about wives need to pray for their husbands. Wives please pray for your husbands regularly, passionately, earnestly. But husbands, you know what Peter's pointing out here, this whole idea of the weaker vessel. In this culture, I think what he's saying is the physically strong is, is accepted to be dominant over the weaker. And what he's saying here to the men is you need to understand that your wife needs your prayer. And she needs understanding and she needs compassion. She's not your servant and your slave. She's your fellow heir in Christ. She's your fellow heir in Christ together in the grace of life. So deal with them with understanding. Have compassion for them. We are different. Men and women are different. And a lot of times the strife and the conflict in relationships are really rooted in the fact that we refuse to understand one another. Why don't you see things the way I see them? Why don't you think the way I think? Why don't you come to my side? What's wrong with you? But what we need to do is understand one another. We need to go before God with compassion and grace for one another. In, in both sides of prayer for marriage. So, Isaac gives us a wonderful representation of the responsibility to intercede on behalf of our wives. Isaac wants an heir, too, but his thought and his, his heart is for his wife, not taking matters into his own hand. He's more concerned with her and what she's going through than what he wants. God promised my father a lineage. Where's mine? That's not Isaac's heart. Isaac's heart is my wife is hurting, so I'm going to pray for her. Now what we're going to find is, uh, if we go back to Genesis, it's another 20 years. It's another 20 years that they have to wait And I hope that this is not getting redundant, this message in this series, because I feel that when Scripture is redundant, it's for a reason. It's because we're thick, and God wants to get something through in our heads. It takes patience to walk with God. That's what faith is. It is not, I prayed, where's mine? Faith is, God, I'll wait on you. I will trust you, and I believe that you will do what is good. It doesn't say, I mean, It kind of says Isaac prayed and she conceived, but what we learn is it's 20 years later. So, again, there's another example, and it's important for us to remember this, because sometimes it is hard to wait on God, especially for something this precious, something so desired. Isaac and Rebecca are another example for us of faith. So Isaac pleads with the Lord for his wife. And the Lord grants his plea. But now she has twins. Back then they didn't have ultrasound. You Might have had a rabbi or shaman who went, yep, I think he got two, but I doubt it. I don't think she knew. All she knew is something didn't feel right. How was that, Mata? And you got twins? A little different, right? Yeah, twins are a little different than one. (laughs) You will feel different. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? Which I'm sure at least one point, maybe many, is a question probably every question has uttered. God, if all is well, Why am I like this? You don't have to be pregnant with twins to go through this, to ask this question. God, I'm yours. I've given my life to you. Why am I feeling like this? Why do things not feel right? Don't we all have that question at at least sometime? And she went to inquire of the Lord. So why why does this question come up? Well, we're going to get into the two boys later, but I want to take an opportunity just to, to meditate on this question for ourselves. God, if all's well, why do I feel a lack of peace? Why, why do things not feel the way I, I expected? And why do I not feel the way I was promised? And why is this just not... Hard. Well, the first answer may be it's because there are two lives living within us, like Jacob and Esau. God and his sovereignty and his wisdom, when we are born again and receive the Holy Spirit, and receive a new life, the old one's still there. He leaves the struggle within us, doesn't he? Just like Jacob and Esau. And it makes days hard sometimes. Turn with me to Romans 7. Paul articulates this very well. If it makes you feel any better about it, let's look at what Paul has to say. If there's any consolation in God, if I'm well, why am I like this? I'm going to kind of truncate this long passage in Romans 7. Paul's talking about the goodness of the law and how the law reveals sin in his life. Being in verse 12, therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? As in the revelation of these things, my awareness of them, now makes them sin. Certainly not, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, that is the law, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And I just want to finish this with the next verse in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what Paul's articulating for us is the struggle that everyone knows and experiences. I now know God. And God's word has revealed to me the wickedness that is in my heart. Things that I never considered were wrong are now brought to the light to me that these things are wrong. The things I say, the things I think, now I don't want to do them anymore. But I keep doing them. I keep doing them. And that's true of everyone. If God, if God's word said, and now that you are saved, you are sinless, go and and. Be fruitful and multiply and spread the word. But it's not what God's word says, does it? The whole New Testament is full of instruction and guidance for us to manage and deal with sin. God leaves the flesh there to fight and war with the the spirit for us. There's two people living inside of us. And it's interesting how they're described with Jacob and Esau. One is stronger but he's going to serve the second, right? The younger one is going to take control. The firstborn, because he's had more time to live, is at first stronger. He is at first stronger. Sin within us that we've always had, that we've manifested for for years, for some of us, decades until we come to Christ, even if those of you who come to Christ as a child, there's still something in there that is very strong but it's going to serve the younger. We're going to take it under captivity. We're going to take it under the authority of Jesus Christ, and we're going to take it under control. But it's a battle. You need to know it's a battle. You need to expect it's a battle. You need not to be discouraged and and discounted and, and lose your countenance because of it, because it's within all of us. There's many things that we have to share with one another. First and foremost is Jesus Christ. Among those many things is this struggle. We get to share and comfort and encourage one another through this struggle because we all have it. There's two people alive in us. In the end, only one's going to live. As Paul said, who will deliver me? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only answer. That's the only hope. And one day, there will be only one. So my encouragement is to recognize and realize And don't be discouraged and brokenhearted and, oh, I'm no good. I'm not worth anything. It's true of all of us. You have to realize and accept the fact that there are two things living inside you. One wants to dominate and one is light. The light will win. But there could be another reason why there's things don't feel right. Maybe we're trying to live two lives. Maybe we're just trying to live two lives. We're trying to live in the world and in Christ. And there's going to be conflict when we do that. James 4, 4, please. James 4, 4 and 5, adulterers and adulteresses, which is what uh, James is calling those who are unfaithful to the Lord by loving another. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, jealously? The Holy Spirit is part of God. God is a jealous God. And I think that's one of my favorite things about him. I love the fact that my God gets mad when my heart is given to another. I love that about my God. I love that passion he has for me. You're mine. I love you. I've given everything for you. You're going to give your affection to another. That offends me. I love that about God. We are coming to a place harder and harder in this world As the world becomes more and more opposed to God and the things of God, it becomes harder and harder to walk in this world. and It becomes easier and easier to compromise the things of God to fit in. Whether it's just entertainment, socialization, fellowship, and all those things corrupt our thinking. And the time with God is not given to God. And the thoughts of God are not given to God. And the attention and the affection meant for God are not given to God because they go to another. So we need to be very careful that we're not living two lives at the same time. We can't be Sunday Christians and somebody else for sick days. It has to be all the time. Christianity is an all-in walk. It's all in. You're in the deep end of the pool. It's all or, it's all or nothing. You can't have it both ways. And know that the jealousy of God will bring discipline and correction because he loves us and he wants us restored back to him when we've wandered. So is there a conflict? Do you have this question? God, I believe in you. Why do I feel this way? Well, maybe we need to examine where's our affection. We have so many struggles. I have hope, but why do I feel fear? I trust, but why do I get angry when I'm persecuted for my faith? I have loved ones I know are in heaven, but why do I still mourn? Because that's the way we're made. I love, but why am I still selfish? These are all the things that go through being a a person with flesh and in Christ. But we have encouragement and direction here, going back to Genesis From Rebecca she inquires of the Lord she seeks God I, I had a couple of verses a few verses that I wanted to share to encourage us in these moments in these times when we have to go to God Psalm 34 four says I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears Psalm 77 2. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. Proverbs 15.29, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And I was encouraged this morning, if I have it saved. Brother James shared from Psalm 28. I didn't save it. I want to share this because. I was trying to think of good verses for this. And then, of course, the Lord's Supper, the Lord goes, I got a better one for you. Psalm 28, you read, right? Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise him. Remember. Always, in all things, at all times, God hears. God hears. We may not always get a direct answer like Rebecca did, but we know that God hears. And sometimes, if we shut up and listen, God will speak to our heart. But if we're just babbling constantly, how are you going to hear anything? But sometimes you just got to go to the scriptures and be reminded of the sovereignty and the goodness of God. And the answer is, I am God. I am good. Trust me. That's the only answer you're going to get. But you got to believe it. You have to rest in it. You have to be able to say, I trust this. I trust this. I wondered, one of the things I wrestled with in this passage, sometimes I try and find things that are unanswerable, and I like to try and bang them around a little bit. In wrestling with the sovereignty of God, if, if Jacob was the intended one to continue the line, why didn't God just make him born first? Why didn't God just, Jacob's gonna be born first, he's the next in line. It's good, I got it. But he didn't. Esau's born first. And I think what God is saying to Rebecca, I see their hearts. I'm not manipulating their birth, but I see their hearts. And this is what's going to be the outcome. God knew Jacob would follow him. Throw me to Romans chapter 9, please. Paul talks about these two. So, you know, so much of the Scripture is predicated on the firstborn, right? God told Moses, um, "God bless you. Consecrate the firstborn, the one who opens the womb. You consecrate to me." Jesus Christ Himself is the firstborn from the dead. There's a special place for firstborn. Yet here, God's just skipping over that, and 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 Paul reveals it to us in Romans 9. Verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy now, of compassion, whomever I will have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. I am trying to learn from this that God is showing to us, I do things my way. Don't get so hung up on, well, it's got to be the firstborn, and it's got to be this way, and it's got to be that way, because this is the way it always is. God says, I will have mercy in who I will have mercy, and I will have compassion in who I will have compassion. Now, if I want to pick Jacob over Esau, I'm going to pick Jacob over Esau. And all you need to know is, I am God. Deal with it. I am God. This is the way I'm going to do it. Don't get so hung up on It's always got to be the firstborn. Because then you know what happens? We try and force things. We try and exclude God and say, well, this is the way it's got to be. So we've got to find a way to fix it and, and, and make Esau the one who's the next in line because he was the firstborn. And just to clarify, verse 13, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. God did not hate Esau. It is simply the way scripture is translated to explain a difference. Compared to Jacob, God had a plan for Jacob. Compared to Jacob, Esau looks like he hated him, but he just had a different plan for him. So Jacob got the favor. So it, it kind of translates that way. God did not hate Esau. And let us not forget just a very simple truth that is very clear. We can turn back to Genesis. That there are two worlds. Look, there is Israel and then there's the rest of the world. God has a plan for Israel and he still does. There is a world with God and without God And then there's us, the church, and the world. Jacob and Esau are a picture of two different things that are separated, that are not the same and cannot be together. It's becoming more and more clear (laughs) and, and harder and harder, but we need to be more convicted and we're going to get into this a little bit deeper, deeper. When Esau sells his birthright, we need to be convicted with the understanding that we are different. We are different than the world. So just for, for a quick clarity, passing through verses twenty-two and twenty-three and thirty-two, when Esau is described as the stronger, the Ed, Esau's name becomes Edom, and they become the Edomites. And they're going to dwell in a certain area of Canaan. And they are going to become a powerful nation. While Jacob's descendants go to Egypt and become slaves, the Edomites are going to grow in power. They're going to have kings and all kinds of people of authority and wealth. It will not last. Even historically, it will not last. They will end up being beaten up by David and Saul in different battles. And eventually, over time, during the Maccabees, they will be wiped out, and they'll either scatter or become adopted by Judaism. So just a little historical narrative as we pause, and we move on. Verse 28, important lesson for us. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Classic blunder, parental favoritism of children. Not a good thing. Even the godly do it. Just an encouragement that we all, whether you have one kid or eight, every child is special, every child is unique. And you have to, as a parent, connect with each child and make sure they know that they are special. No favoritism. It's very it's very damaging. Um, I, I have a co-worker um, who is no longer married, and he told me straight up, shared with me, that he was very close with his daughter and his wife was very close with his son, and they were always in conflict about it, always in conflict about it. He, he was sharing with me that the battles him and his wife had because they were favoring the other one or... You know, they didn't want to discipline one because they were their favorite and, and and all this conflict, they are no longer married, largely because of that. Um it, it is it is just a really, really, really important lesson that parents understand that you have to connect with every child and make every child in your family that you that you bore or bear uh special. Now the tragedy is that Isaac loves Esau because of what he can do for him, not who he is. Isaac's not known to be a hunter, but Isaac provides for his dad his favorite meal, his favorite game. So Isaac favors Esau. Now, when Jacob is described described as being a mild man, sometimes it's unfair that Jacob is called the mama's boy. People will say that Esau was a man's man. Isaac Isaac was just a little... Pansy you hung out with mom in the tent i don't see that in the scripture at all jacob is probably a shepherd he just has a different work he's not out there in the field hunting going home all filthy and, and, and sweaty not a right or wrong they're just different people they're just different people So Esau comes in and he says, Feed me with that stew, for I am weary. And Jacob says, Sell me your birthright. There's a problem here that I think Jacob's taking God's plan into his own hands. But it's interesting, Scripture condemns Esau, but never Jacob. And look what Esau says in verse 32. What is this birthright to me? I'm hungry. That is one of the saddest things I've ever read in scripture. That is one of the saddest things I have ever read in scripture. He's take out the spiritualness of being firstborn and supposedly the heir in line. All his father's wealth, all the camels, all the tents, all the cattle, everything that his father has acquired. Should be his. Everything that Abraham passed on to Isaac, Isaac's wealth, that Isaac's acquired and now Abraham and, and Abraham's inheritance. What is that to me? I'm just hungry. What a drama queen. I'm about to die. This is where spiritual maturity is so important. Because a lack of spiritual maturity will put life in the wrong perspective. And when life is in the wrong perspective, We make bad decisions because we have improper priorities. The life of faith is a life of dependence on God. And Esau is the classic case of I don't care about the picture. We've been talking about this for months. God deals in the big picture. Esau could care less about the big picture. Esau wants his now. And it's not even important. He could have ate something else, have a banana. He could have got something else but he wants what his brother has made it smells good he's immature he's childish and he's using his hyperdramatic emotion to overcome any wisdom and any perspective and just to demand what he doesn't actually need he is not going to die but sometimes in the in the in the drama of life it kind of feels that way you know, we don't have to be as childish as, as Esau to realize that sometimes we just forsake the big picture for something that's not as big a deal as we think it is. It takes a lot of spiritual discernment and weighing. That's why it's good to get counsel. It's good to bring your burdens and your problems before other brothers and sisters in Christ and say, this is what I see, this is how I feel, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Maybe you need somebody in your life to go, don't, don't forsake Don't forsake what God has for you for a quick fix. My brother, my sister, maybe God has a plan for this. Don't jump to the quick, easy answer. In Hebrews 12, Esau is actually called a profane person because he forsook his birthright. Hebrews 12 talks about apostasy. Apostasy is, is the thing where someone recalls their profession of faith, where, where they recant what they have professed to believe in. Now, I don't want to get into a whole thing on apostasy in, in Hebrews 12. If it's something you're interested in, you can certainly study it, but I'll just sum it up this way. If someone really believes in Jesus Christ, they can't recant. The dwelling of the Holy Spirit and the seal of the Holy Spirit will lock you into God, and you may struggle with God, and you may get carnal, you may have all kinds of walk in life, but a true believer will never recant their profession. Anyone who recants their profession never actually believed. And that's what Hebrews teaches us. That's what I believe Hebrews teaches us. So Esau, in his willingness to recant his birthright, yeah, just take it, whatever, just give me that, is is condemned in Scripture. He did not cherish his birthright. He did not hold in the proper esteem and preciousness what was his as firstborn. He was willing to cast it away. The question we have to ask ourselves from this is are we willing to so easily cast aside what we have in Christ for something simpler and easier? Are we willing to walk away from the hard to take the easy? Are we willing to associate with the world because Christianity is too hard right now? Are we willing to give up all that God has promised for us because it's just too hard? Or do we have the faith and the sustenance in Christ to know that God will carry me through this? I can't see the outcome right now, but I know that God is good. And if I put this in my own hands and I take the easy way out, am I forsaking what God has given me and promised me in Christ? When it says Esau, in verse 34, despises his birthright, he just didn't think it was valuable. People may disagree with me, but the way I read this is not that after he sold it, he despised it. He sold it because he despised it. It had no value to him. Otherwise, he never would have been in that situation. It wasn't taken from him. He willingly gave it up for nothing. And this is the heart that God knew. When these two twins were were in Rebecca's belly, this is what God saw in Esau. This is why Jacob was the one who was picked. Are we willing to give up so quickly because things are hard? Are we so easily compromised for something minor that we become dramatic unnecessarily and just lose the faith and the walk with God and the trust? I was um, just encouraged in this. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, All this is yours. Just worship me. All this is yours. Wouldn't that have been a lot easier for Jesus? No cross, no crucifixion, no agony, no separation from the Father. He could have avoided all that, taken the easy way. But Jesus did not despise his birthright. But he cherished who he was with God. He cherished what his responsibility was. He cherished what his role was. He cherished what his work was and nothing was going to deter him and sell him out on the easy way. It's a wonderful example for us, putting aside the thing that he couldn't, but it's just a beautiful picture for us to hold hold true to the faith, hold true to the walk with God, even when it's hard. So I'm going to wrap up, and I just want to encourage us with just some, some reminders um, from this passage. Husbands, we need to pray for our wives and do it from a place of righteousness so our prayers are not hindered. Our walk needs to be good with God. Our wives benefit from that. Like Rebecca with twins, we have two people at conflict within us. Look, the older may have started, it may, be, may have started out stronger, but know this, the younger will rule. The new man will rule. Do not give into the struggle, and let us never ever, under any circumstances, despise our birthright or be indifferent to our spiritual blessings in Christ. For a time, I'm, I, wasn't, I decided not to go there, but I'll encourage you to read Ephesians chapter one if you really want to think about what that means. Do not compromise. Do not sell out. Do not take the easy path. God is good. God is always good. And God will always do good. And God will always work everything out for good. Don't take the easy way. It's not always the right way. Let's pray. And then we'll kick off corporate prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you so much. You saw our heart. And you saw that we would be those who would have a heart that was not good. But in your love for us, you gave us a savior. You gave us one who would impute righteousness to us so that we could be good before you, so that we could be righteous, so we could come before you and walk with you. And God, I I wish you didn't leave the old man. I really wish you just made me sinless. I know there will be a time when I am. And so God, for now through this time, I just pray you would help us to walk with you to trust you, to not take the easy road, to not forsake all that we have in Christ just because maybe it's hard today. Maybe because the world is making it hard today. Maybe just doing the right thing is hard. It takes sacrifice. God helps to walk with Christ, to proclaim Christ all around us so that he's proclaimed in our heart. Father, we thank you so much for loving us and giving us your son. We glorify you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll do corporate prayer for 10 or 15 minutes. Josh is going to throw some things that we could pray for. The um, red son, Edward, by the way. I, I, I think that's it's Edward, right, that we were praying for? We still praying for Edward? All right, okay, great. So if you want to pray for any of those things, remember the drive-in coming up. And uh, after a little while, I will close.